0: Okay. Um, I'll kick it off. Thank you all for joining us for today's event, Front and Center, NATSEC Women in Media. I'm Jessica Jones, Deputy Executive Director at the National Security Institute at George Mason University, Scalia Law School, and a size a bipartisan think tank committed to finding practical solutions and real world national security law and policy questions, as well as education, educating the next generation of leaders. We are extremely excited to be one of many amazing sponsors of the first ever Women in National Security Media Festival, hosted now during Women's History Month. The the festival is aimed at illuminating the role of women in national security through public and media events such as book events, a film series, a podcast discussion, and more. For today's event, we're here to highlight the stories of four amazing women, Sarah Iskar, Lauren Tomlinson, Heather Molino, and Tal Kopen, who developed their careers at the intersection of national security and media. As to run a show, we'll begin today's event with a panel discussion, during which please feel free to submit questions using the Q&A function. Um, we'll aim to get to those questions at around 15 to 20 minutes, the last 15 to 20 minutes of the event. Um, moderating today's conversation is Tal Copen. Tal is a senior political reporter uh, and Washington correspondent for the San Francisco Chronicle. Before that, she was a political reporter at CNN and a cybersecurity policy reporter at Politico. Tal, please take it from here.
1: Hi, thank you, everyone. So uh, I'm going to <clears throat> introduce our panel, tell you a little bit about myself uh, and and we'll be off to the races. Uh, so Sarah Esker is currently a staff writer at the Dispatch, and it's kind of funny because I've worked with all of these women <laughs> at various times in the course of my career. But uh, she's currently a staff writer at the Dispatch, uh, hosts the legal podcast Advisory Opinions, frequently appears as a legal analyst on cable news. And prior to joining the dispatch, she served in the Justice Department as the Director of the Office of Public Affairs and as Senior Counsel to the Deputy Attorney General. Lauren Tomlinson uh, has become a trusted advisor for CEOs, senators, congressmen, and high-level officials and executives for more than a decade through her work in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Fortune 500 companies, and in Congress. She is also the founder and president of Claffey Communications, a strategic advisory and communications firm. Heather Molino serves as a principal at Cornerstone. Heather has two decades of Capitol Hill and communications experience where she developed significant expertise in cyber defense, space, intelligence, and national security. And prior to joining Cornerstone, Heather was the minority staff director for the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, HIPC or Intelligence Committee, depending on what you do in Washington, uh, under the ranking member uh, Dutch Ruppersberger, a Democrat from Maryland. And I'll just tell you briefly a little bit about myself. I know that we have sort of a mixed group of uh, folks in the audience, some beginning their career, some already in their career. Uh, so we're going to try to give you a, a sort of mix of advice and and insights based on those various ranges of experience. But, you know, I got started just in journalism and specifically got into political journalism. And I didn't really consider myself a national security specialist. And then I was moving into moving from sort of a generalist reporting role at Politico uh, and they wanted to move me into a specific beat. And there were sort of a few different things that they had in the mix. And one of them was cybersecurity and they were just launching a cybersecurity vertical. And they were like, what do you think of that one? And I was like, that sounds cool. Uh, I've been really interested in, in sort of law and justice throughout my career. And I was like, that sounds like there could be some really interesting sort of legal stuff to dig into there. Uh, sure, why not? So I gave it a try and uh, coming to it from scratch, which was a really interesting experience trying to learn this very technical field, a lot of national security, a lot of technology, and and figure out not only how to learn it myself, but to then how to translate what I was learning uh, to a reader that, you know, may or may not have expertise in it. And that's really when I started working with some of these women on the panel in, in cybersecurity. Uh, and, you know, from there, I, I did that for a while. When I moved over to CNN, I sort of started as a generalist again, but then ended up covering immigration policy, uh, more or less full time. And that also has a lot of sort of national security elements to it. Again, uh, some sort of justice stuff, uh, border security had me working a lot once again with the Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department. Uh, now I'm back to being a generalist, but when you're a generalist, all sorts of stuff comes up. And so I still end up covering a lot of these issues in my current job there. When you talk about a Bay Area audience, cybersecurity and immigration are both areas of significant interest to my readers. So so I still cover those. And so that's sort of how I've interfaced with national security. And in all the cases, I kind of came to it um, from scratch and had to learn it. I I knew sort of how to be a journalist, Uh, but in some ways I found that my kind of lack of, prior expertise was actually an advantage, especially for what I do, which is that translation feature that I could come into it with fresh eyes and sort of say, what would, what would surprise or interest someone who maybe isn't an expert in this? uh, And how can I make this seemingly intimidating field or, or topic interesting and accessible to them? Uh, so that's my short little opening spiel, and I will hand it off to Sarah, since she's first on my list, uh, to to go uh, go ahead with hers.
2: It is very funny doing a panel with Tal, because as you said, Tal, we work together, and uh, but we haven't talked since I left DOJ, and so this is kind of a treat, um, and I'm excited to be on this panel. I think, uh, first of all, y- y'all should listen to and learn so much from Tal, because I think that when we talk about national security, so much of it is about, should be about, I think, um, translating that to an audience that doesn't live and breathe this stuff and Tal's experience in doing that, I think is really important. I think I actually also have sort of that non-expertise translation side as well, um, as opposed to our other members of the panel who are actual experts. I do not want to pretend to be one. My um, entree into this I do campaigns I'm a campaign operative did (laughs) we'll get to that in a minute uh so I started in opposition research and on the legal side uh I was on um the legal teams in the Romney 08 and 12 campaigns I ran Carly Fiorina's campaign in 2016 which also involved overseeing um the legal side and very accidentally found myself in communications and um you know, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about what it means to be a woman in politics and in these fields to begin with, but uh, probably not a coincidence that you know of all the men in sort of the legal side of campaigns, they were like, you with the hair, um, come do the TV side. Uh, and so I'd been in the Department of Justice several times by that point. So when Jeff Sessions became attorney general, they asked me to head up the Office of Public Affairs which is really, it was such a unique experience coming from the campaign world and even the communication side to no longer be a partisan actor, no longer be um, an advocate. Really, it was a treat to be at the Department of Justice and to feel very much every day isolated from the White House, from Congress. Everyone hated us. This was obviously during the Russia investigation. And so, um, I don't know that there is a person who has worked in government more than me, who just was like, I work for taxpayers. That's all I do every day. And my job is to try to work with people like tall to get accurate information out there. Um, but my job is not particularly to make anyone look good or hide things. And so, um, when it came to national security, that becomes really tough because there are things that I can't tell tall, um, But it becomes really important, especially during the Russia investigation, when there was so much incorrect information out there, or maybe more accurately, conjecture. It was just a whole lot of conjecture about what was going on. Um, And the Russia investigation involved FISA's. It involved, um, you know, State Department permits on uranium Uh, I mean, it it, like encompassed all sorts of weird parts of national security that suddenly were just in the realm of national security experts and sitting around like nerding out together, but everyone in America needed this explained. And so, um, you know, if, if we look at this as sort of a conveyor belt, it was working with national security lawyers and prosecutors within the department translating that to me as a lawyer who worked in the department, and then me translating that to Tal, a reporter who was working in national security and immigration issues, as you said, Tal. And so anyway, that's what I hope to contribute to this panel is that that other cog in the wheel of talking about national security, informing about national security, um, you know, after um, the experts have already done their work.
1: Yeah. And, and funny story that when I when I left cybersecurity reporting, uh, it was sort of mid 2015 and I was sort of like, oh, it's going to be this really interesting presidential election cycle. I'm a political reporter. Do I want to spend, <clears throat> you know, this entire sec- this entire uh, cycle? Covering cybersecurity, which no one's going to be paying attention to, and then of course in twenty (laughs) sixteen, that cybersecurity expertise ended up being part of the the political coverage. So um, to Sarah's point, you you sort of you never know when an obscure, a seemingly obscure topic is going to suddenly be very much a hot topic that like everyone is interested
2: in. And to that Um, point, Paul, I'll just say, I have never spent time doing a deep dive on any issue of like weird nerdy things that hasn't come up at some point later in my career where I'm like, Oh, Hey, that turned out to be helpful. So just a plug for, um, indulging your passions along the way. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, next on the
1: list is Lauren. If you want to take it away.
3: Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be on this panel. And it's kind of funny um, being referred to as the expert because, you know, I think um, maybe it's part of the female thing, but by no means do I uh, expect myself to be um, an expert in national security. Um, But when I look back at my career, it's kind of all I've talked about. Um, I got my start on Capitol Hill um, as an intern for Johnny Isaacson, who was a Georgia senator, and then um, just decided that I liked communications out of all the aspects of the office, and that was kind of the thing that I liked doing the most. I liked writing. I liked interacting with the media, Um, and then I met my next boss on an elevator, and that's how I got started with uh, Senator Saxby Chambliss, who was another senator from Georgia. And he's the one that got me started on the national security path because he was, uh, at that point, he was on the Senate Armed Services Committee um, and the Senate Intelligence Committee. He later became vice chairman of the Intelligence Committee. um, And then at that point, I was doubling as spokesman for him and the Senate Intelligence Committee um, when we were doing the Benghazi report and um, major cybersecurity legislation, some of the first um, in regards to... Um, litigation and liability protections. Um, And, you know, then I moved over to the House side and worked on the Department of Homeland Security or the Committee on Homeland Security um, for a while. And, you know, the thread through all of that, my Congress days was just that I loved communications. And I loved working with the media and being an advocate for the media um, within Congress and getting, like Sarah said, accurate information out on all the different things that these people were working on. Um, And then I decided to move to corporate America. (laughs) And I worked for Southern Company, which is an energy company down in Atlanta for a while. And, you know as much of a shift as it was from political and national security communications, it had the same vein. There's cybersecurity issues um, within energy companies. You know, critical infrastructure is huge um, within uh, the national security realm. And, uh, you know, we were dealing with hurricanes the same way that we were dealing that the uh, committee was. So it was a great time to be um, running corporate comms for such a large company. And then um, I had the opportunity to move back to the Department of Homeland Security and serve as the Deputy Assistant Secretary um, for the department for a while. And that was an amazing experience to get back into true national security issues. Um, and again, just working with the um, media day in and day out and crafting messages and deciding how we were going to announce things like the laptop ban that happened, um, you know, working with TSA and uh, and uh, communicating to the public really important information that could, you know, impact their lives um, and, you know, helping the public understand why national security issues and why the measures we're taking are so important. Um, and now... You know, I left and I started my own company um, and I consult for all sorts of different people with, you know, the the vein being um, media relations and corporate communications and how to talk to people and persuade people to get on your side on those things. Um, and I always say, if you've communicated these difficult issues on national security, where half the time you can't even say half the things that you want to say because it's classified, uh, then you can pretty much persuade anyone to do anything. So it's a great field to get into um, and get some real chops um, if you want to be a communicator.
1: And last but certainly not least, Heather. Hello, everyone.
4: It's so exciting to be here with this amazing panel of women and it's so fun. I've been spending the last two years here this has been my home office. Uh, It's so fun to have the world open up but still do some cool stuff on Zoom. So yeah, so my name's Heather Molino. I have a very sort of unique career path. Um, I think we sort of all have sort of done our, uh, wandered through our careers and had really cool things happen and opportunities presented to ourselves. So I I went to school in upstate New York um, for, I was a government and uh, economics major, communications minor. And I said, I want to be a television reporter. So I'm from Boston. My parents were from New York. I went to Cornell and I said, I'm going to, you know. So I drove down on spring break and gave my tape. Remember the VCR tapes you used to have? That's, I was in in TV in the nineties and that's how you did your reel, you handed it out. And I got a job in Wilmington, North Carolina and they moved me to the Fayetteville Bureau and my dad dropped me off and I will never forget. My dad was like, I've never been to the South. You don't have to do this. You don't have to prove anything to anyone. And I was like, dad, I gotta do this. This is what I wanna do. So I ended up being the reporter at Fort Bragg, sort of fell into national security and just loved it, just absolutely fell into it. I was in um, North Carolina, Virginia, Washington State, and then in D.C. in the early 2000s. I worked for um, News Channel 8 and WJLA up here. I was, at, I was a political reporter, Maryland reporter, and I had known a bunch of the Maryland members. And I decided at one point that I was working nice and weekends. I loved it, but I was like, you yeah, know, I want to do something different. And I reached out to a couple of members on the Hill and said, hey, you know, do you have any opportunities for a communications director? And as you know, Hill folks love former reporters. We know how it works. We know how to sell things. We know how to write. We know how to present the great image. So um, and I remember people telling me at the time, you have to pick a great member that believes in what you believe in because you have to sort of you have to go and sell their wares, if you will, sell their positions and never thought much of it. But I fell in with a member called Dutch Rupert from, he was Baltimore City, Baltimore County, sort of middle of Maryland. And he was the first freshman, Democratic freshman on the Intelligence Committee. At the time, I had no idea what that meant. You know, I was like, I just want a job. I just want to be a comms director on the Hill. Like, this sounds really fun. I fell in with him and um, started doing his comms, loved it. We did all sorts of international stuff. We traveled. We had NSA in the district. We had BWI. We had um, Aberdeen Proving Ground, all of these great things to talk about. And so I worked with him and, and I was older. I, most communication instructors are in their 20s and I was in my 30s at the time. And um, he, he quickly promoted me to the, um, to the deputy chief of staff. So I'd handled all the policy in the DC office together with the policy team, obviously. And um, I will never forget in 2010, he became the ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee. And I was in the personal office, I had a clearance and everything, but I was in the personal office. And he said to me, you're gonna run it for me. I remember being like, okay. I don't know what that means, but I'm in. I'm in, let's do it. So I went and it was one of those things where the perfect opportunity just lands in your lap. You just say, yes. You don't worry about, can I do it? You say, yeah, I can, I'll figure it out. Oh, I met with everyone, the, the Republican staff director, the democratic staff director um, on the Senate side. I was like, tell me what, what this means, like, what do we do? And I, we were in the minority and we had a great, great relationship with Chairman Rogers. It was a great bipartisan thing. And, and Lauren, and i traveled with your old boss, with Mr. Chambliss, And this went all over the world together (laughs) in Saudi Arabia and all sorts of cool stuff. But I took the job and and it was one of those moments where it was like, Heather, you got to stand up. You got to just do this. And as I said, I met with people. I read everything. And I had a, I had a baby at the time. I had a two-year-old and I was pregnant again and about to have another, I ended up having three, but I was pregnant and I didn't tell anybody I was pregnant, but I was like, I'll do this. I went in, I read it, it was all in the skiff and I learned what I had to do and what I had to communicate and the decisions we made. And I had the best boss who was pro-national security. He's a moderate Dem from Maryland. And it was just the most amazing, amazing experience. And then um, my boss, Mr. Rivers was termed out of Hipsy At the time, there were term limits. He came in and he was wonderful. He was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I'm out. <laughs> I have three kids under four years old. I'm traveling the world. I'm handing babies to my mom. And my husband and saying, see it, I mean, I'm in Saudi Arabia, I'll see you in two weeks. So, um, and then I decided, you know, I really want to do, I, I, at the time we worked with your old boss, Lauren, and did a lot of cybersecurity legislation, a lot of technology, a lot of we bought the Intel off back on, on, on track. So I really enjoyed cyber, cyber and tech and innovation. And I decided reinventing myself, like, let's, I'm going to go be a consultant. Cornerstone had approached me through some friends and I said, you know, I, I want to, go to a shop where I can work with companies and clients of, for something I believe in, cybersecurity technology, digital modernization, making the citizen experience better for the you know person trying, and that's what I do. I, I manage at Cornerstone, I manage a portfolio of clients in the technology arena, all the big companies you've heard of like Adobe, SAP ServiceNow and the teeny tiny ones like ZeroFox out of Baltimore that does digital threat protection online. Really, really fun stuff, exciting. I'm excited to go to work. And I have a lot more control of my schedule. I have three kids. They're 12, 10, and eight. I'm at soccer games. This morning, I was at a, <laughs> a Rover. They put Rovers in the pool and they had to put these rings in a bucket. I scooched out for you know 45 minutes, ran down to the school, watched it, came back, and here I am. So um, it's been a really, really fun career. But um, And I know we have folks more new in their career uh, on the line here and, and older, love to talk through sort of um, you know how we can how we can help you guys out. It's so it's been a really fun run, and and it's so nice to be able to talk about national security, especially as a woman. I and mean, that's the other. Oh, and the, the one thing I will say when I started on the Hill, I will never forget. I walked into the room. I was the staff director in twenty ten, and I walked into a room of staff directors. It was one woman, one woman, no minorities, just me, a bunch of white men. And I and I remember thinking, oh my god. And Karen Rob, who worked for Mr. Van Hollen on the Budget Committee, she was awesome. And um, there were like people standing up on the sides and some people sitting at the table, the communications director stood on the sides and the staff director. And she was like, Heather, you sit here, you're the staff director. Like you sit here in the front row by Pelosi's chief staff. Okay, here we go. <laughs> it's, it's fun to see um, so many women in such great careers. So back to Utah, I know I talked a lot.
1: No, <laughs> oh, mom power. I have a two-year-old and I can't imagine multiplying that by three. Oh my goodness, <laughs> and doing what you were doing. Uh, but there is, there is a special, special level of mom efficiency that just kind of kicks in <laughs> out of necessity. Um, I actually, to piggyback on, um, on what Heather just said, I, I wanted to start there. I, you know, not, not kind of tiptoe around it, but the fact that like, there aren't a ton of women in national security, certainly not a majority of folks in national security. There seems to be a growing number, uh, and, you know, when I was thinking about that, when they were sort of like, oh, what do you want to cover? Do you want to cover cybersecurity? I took that into consideration. You know, I was like, do I want to be, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a woman reporter, like, what can I cover? Where do I want to make a mark? And I don't want to be intimidated away from something um, like cybersecurity. And so I wanted to start with that to ask all of you, what have you found being a woman in this space, both, you know, obstacles and ad- advantages. I mean, sometimes it can be beneficial to stand out from the pack a little bit when you're applying for a job, any, anything, if you, if there's something distinctive about you, it can be an advantage if you sort of know how, but it can also be an obstacle and, um, and bring up all sorts of different wrinkles and complications. So um, if there's anyone who wants to sort of jump in right away, go for it. Otherwise I will have to call on someone (laughs) to start us off.
2: Sure. I'm happy to talk a little bit about this. So um, when I first graduated college, I got a job on the Hill. I dreamed of, um, you know, being a press secretary before law school. And I was a press secretary for six weeks before I was fired. And um, there's probably lots of reasons that I was fired. probably I was pretty obnoxious to be honest, but it's not that relevant because it was what I thought I was fired for, you know, at 21 years old. And I thought I was fired for being unwilling to make coffee, uh, which I was, I don't drink coffee. So like, why would I make you coffee? And you know, I'm the press secretary. Why should I be doing that? Um, and that I was, you know, like for a woman uppity, you know, I, I was, too confident as a woman. You know, if I had been a 21 year old man who got a job as a press secretary, it would have been like, wow. But instead as a woman, it was like, well, she needs to like know her place. And so I decided that um, Legally Blonde had just come out and that like, that seemed like a good role model. Uh, so I literally, I went to Harvard Law School to like BL Woods, I guess. I don't, I don't quite know how else to explain it, but like I kind of did um, and It worked in some sense, right? Like that credential matters. What Carly Fiorina used to tell me is that the sexism is more nuanced than it used to be, right? Like she would have crazy stories of, you know, the kind of sexism that we do not encounter today. Thank goodness, Um, you know, being taken to a strip club with clients and stuff like that. But there's different types of, discrimination that women face that I think we need to be more clear about. Because when we say like, oh, there's sexism, what most of the men are hearing is like, well, I'm not sexist, so that doesn't make sense to me. And so let me walk through two things that I think are really important. One, Carly would tell me that a man walks in with credibility already and a woman has to prove her credibility. That is one type of sexism that I've seen over and over again. and there's ways to overcome that for instance i think at the department of justice it i can't tell you how important it was that the vast majority of lawyers i mean there's 120,000 people who work at doj so i don't want to like <laughs> the vast majority though of senior staff lawyers assistant attorney general their first assistant that type stuff knew me they'd known me my whole career so i didn't have to walk in and improve my credibility because i already had those relationships And had spent, you know, two decades proving my credibility wildly helpful because I think Carly's right as a woman in particular, when you walk into a room, when Jim Comey walks into a room, he's six foot eight (laughs) and like he walks into a room and everyone's like, Jim Comey, what do you have to tell us? That's just not true. When I walk into a room, I'm five, seven and I'm wearing heels. Um, And the second thing that i would be so interested to have the panel also think about is men tend to be friends with men and women tend to be friends with women which is all fine that's not sexism that's just some reality but the problem comes in where men hold those top echelon positions hiring decisions all of that because if that's all men and they're friends with more men than women they're going to be more likely to think of their friends when they're looking to hire. And especially when we're dealing with politics, national security, media, where relationships are so important. And so there can be a sexism that's not really sexism because they're not thinking, I don't like women. I don't think women are competent. I don't wanna hire women. It's like, oh, I just saw Bob yesterday. He would be so perfect for this. They're top of mind. Um, You know, my husband is in a poker group. It's all men, again not because they hate women, but like it's a men's poker group. They want to play poker with each other. That's great. But when they're dealing with clients, they're going to be more likely to think of their poker buddies. And again, to be perfectly honest, I am more likely to think of my female friends when I'm in hiring decisions. But the reality is that there are simply fewer women at that top sphere. And until we reach that tipping point, I think we need to tell men, remind men and and make sure that we're not having women talk to other women about these problems, because so much of it is men hearing like, Oh, that's why I have only men on my team because I'm hiring my poker group. Yeah. And, and like that, Oh, I
1: see myself in them. Right. Like, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you are only looking for people that remind you of yourself, you're going to hire a lot of people like yourself. Um, Lauren or Heather, feel free to jump in.
3: Yeah. I mean, just to jump what off Sarah said, um, the credibility part, I think that's probably, and I don't know if I did anything right in regards to like navigating um, these like male dominated worlds uh, necessarily. But, you know, I worked with a bunch of national security people. I worked in politics, which is a ton of men like throwing footballs and having beers in the office. And then I worked, um, you know, with a bunch of engineers. Southern Company, which were all men. (laughs) And they were all fabulous humans. And I loved working in each of those groups. Um, But I leaned into the credibility part. Um, You know, like I knew that as an individual and, you know, like not even thinking systemically, just as I navigated it, I made sure that I always was dressed professionally. And you know, I always wore heels, and I always wore the suit. I all, you know, I went to grad school at night to get that master's degree in uh, communications because I knew from a young age that I needed the extra credibility um, early on. I asked the dumb questions to make sure that I got it right because if I got it wrong, I knew that that was going to be a double hit against me. Um, so being extra prepared and um, extra serious and more professional. Necessarily, then my counterparts was always something I strove on a daily basis. And, you know, I think that that helped Um, it helped a lot. And then, you know, also to Sarah's point, there was a lot of times where I was throwing the football with them in the office because I was like, you know what, if I don't reach a personal level with my coworkers, my male coworkers, there is going to you know, it's a it's an interpersonal thing. It's a work thing. You have to take those extra steps. And, you know, I was lucky to be in a point in my life where I could dedicate that time to go and do those things. And, you know, it's now it's kind of a different challenge for me um, because I'm eight months pregnant with my second kid and I've got a one year old at home. And so it's like a whole different ballgame when you're navigating um, the networking, the D.C. networking scene um, as a mom and, you know, navigating childcare and having to say no to opportunities because of those things. Um, and I think that's actually more difficult than it was when I was in my 20s and early 30s with no responsibilities and able to keep up with the guys. Um, and I think that's actually uh, something that I personally struggle with now. And, you know, I think it's I've just been so lucky, I think, in my career to have older women as well in all of these positions that I've been able to model my path through and ask the tough questions and do those things because. You know, also like Sarah said, like, you know, with Carly, there's been all of these women that came before us that did all of the really hard lifting. And so what we're navigating now is kind of like fine tuning, I think, um, a lot of those unconscious biases um, and looking for those extra opportunities. Um, that can exist. And, you know, the unfortunate reality is we will still have to be more prepared. We will still have to be more credible. We will still have to be more professional um, than some of our counterparts in order to succeed. Um, But, you know, we'll just have to keep putting in those work and then we'll mentor the next generation below us and they'll have to do one less step than we did.
4: And I sort of took Lauren's tact of being just more prepared, read more, learn more spend more time at the office. And, and I, so I, I have um, four brothers. I'm the second from the youngest. I'm used to men. I got in national security. As I said, I sort of fell into it with Ms. Rufusberg, He put, put me on the committee and it was all men. I mean, I, but he would say, it was funny, I, it, he would say to anyone to like, DNI, and I never, talking to Heather's like talking to me. If she asked you to do something, it's just like me. And everyone was like, okay. And that's sort of how it ran. Like we just rolled with it. But I, but I always like the the staff director for the Republicans. There were two of them during my tenure. Were both men. a Great relationships with both of them. But I'm I'm comfortable with men. And I guess I don't. I wasn't threatened. I was. I read more. Learned more. You know. Figured out what we wanted to do. Took off a few. You know. I prioritized what the congressman wanted us to achieve in bills or this or that. And just off we went. But it was because I had his backing. He would just say talking to her is like talking to me. And then that, And then they'd be like, all right. We'll get you the document, we'll read you in, you know, all that stuff.
1: Yeah, and I thought about your your opening anecdote of the other staff director who told you, we sit here. And, you know, when you talk about sort of this new generation of women breaking into these spaces, there was sort of that first wave of women who had to, you know, Sarah, as you described, who had to like really shove their way in and deal with a lot, you know, a lot of them come from a time where that was really zero sum, where like one woman was going to break into that space and they couldn't help each other. They just had to help themselves. And I think we've now reached a time where like there are enough women getting into these spaces that there's 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 more than one of us sometimes. And this sort of the nuance is figuring out how you bring others along with you. And like, I remember reading about the women in the Obama administration um, who who noticed that like, they would raise a point in a meeting and it would get glossed over. And then, you know, several things later, a man would say essentially the same thing. And I'd be like, oh, what a great idea, Bob. Such so you know, and they made a conscious decision to start repeating each other's points with credit so they would say, oh yeah, and what Heather said was so smart and what Lauren said was so smart. So not just reiterating, but like making sure that people knew where it came from. And I just like immediately started doing that in meetings and talk to other women about it. And like, it, it works, <laughs> you know? And so I think that's sort of the nuance of um, you carve space for yourself and you also are cognizant of having to carve space for others. Um, And clearly this conversation has struck a chord because we are getting a whole bunch of questions on this topic. Um, One of which I think is like a really great piggyback on this. Um, The commenter said, I've heard the feedback so many times. She needs to know her place. Uh, What do you do with that? And, you know, I'll say when I talk to, when I'm mentoring younger people in general, a lot of women, uh, I think you have to think about the world as you believe it should be, and the world as you know it to be. And you kind of have to deal with that dynamic and sometimes make some decisions of, am I going to approach the situation the way I believe the world should work? Or am I going to approach the situation the way I know the world to work? Or am I gonna, am I gonna try to do both? And so, you know, for me, um, there's a sort of, you know, reporting tactic. They'll tell you there are like two ways to, you can, you can kind of play dumb sometimes as a way to get information um, and be like, oh, how does that work? Today? Or you can kind of like show your smarts and show that you understand things and like kick the conversation into another gear. I always personally chose the latter. Like I knew that I was a, a, a you know, a reporter, that wasn't like a lot of the other reporters who may have easier sourcing relationships, um, relationships that won't be confused, uh, all sorts of things like that. And I was like, I'm not gonna play dumb, I'm not dumb. I understand this stuff. And so I always made it a point to like demonstrate even just with the questions I was asking that I already understood their world. They weren't going to need to explain to me, You know, this is a cybersecurity niche joke, but like, what is information sharing? Like I already knew the jargon, I already knew the hot button issues. Like we could dispense with that kind of basic understanding and move into meteor stuff. Um, but to get back to the point of like, she needs to know her place. I mean, I think it's a balancing act but I always try to sort of take up space and be present and not be put in place while also recognizing that, um, you know, it's that age old, like, emails need a greeting and a closing and several exclamation points to not seem threatening. Like you can, you can package the confidence with pleasantries to kind of, to kind of find that balance of you know, being assertive, but also recognizing that like there are people who are not gonna immediately warm up to that and it's okay to do that warming up um, and and the work to encourage others to take up space and all that kind of stuff sort of like at the same time. That's, that's my personal approach. And if others sort of want to jump in on this question.
2: I think it, um, so when I, 20 years ago when I was starting out I always was sort of frustrated by the women above me because I felt like they were much harder on me um, because, and I understood why, right? <clears throat> they didn't want me to embarrass all women. They wanted me to be better faster smarter and i was like yeah but like why do i why am i being held to a different standard and so i think one of the challenges for us as we now move into those mentor roles rather than mentee roles is what is that thing that we're trying to pass along now to the 20-somethings because the lessons that were taught to us no longer need to be taught there's new lessons now and so on the knowing your place thing look it kind of depends what place you're in I had a whole bunch of, you know, 20 something dudes on the Carly campaign who thought they could be campaign manager, even though they were like a press assistant, like you should know your place. Um, I don't need your advice on, you know, what we should do in the Iowa caucus right now. I need you to, you know, get those media sheets updated. Um, I think what the, the thing that I try now to mentor women about in terms of the knowing your place is actually something that a, a male boss of mine um, told me. I had a huge chip on my shoulder through my 20s, maybe my 30s, maybe now, I don't know. Um, you have to find a way to get that chip off your shoulder, first of all, and that's just going to be different for everyone and why that chip's there in the first place. Um, but you know, one of the things that I would constantly do is think that my competitive advantage was... Um, basically knowing a whole bunch of stuff a little bit and it is a competitive advantage of mine but when he would ask me a question uh, you know well how much is that budgeted for in this round of legislation I'd be like I think it's 180 million and he was like okay stop is it 180 million because either you shouldn't be saying I think in front of that or you should say let me get that number for you I'll be right back But never guess and never undermine your own authority when presenting that. And so what I tell everyone, but especially women, is you have to know your stuff. You will rise over time. There's a whole bunch of 20-somethings doing what you're doing. And right now, the best thing you can do, whether you're a lawyer uh, or in politics, is to know it better than everyone else. And so when your boss asks you a question, it is actually better and more impressive to your boss, if you don't know the answer to say, I'm gonna get you that answer rather than guess, waste his time, her time. Um, And at the same time, if you do know the answer, don't say, I think, you know the damn answer. Raise your hand and say, it's hundred million in this round. Last round, it was 150 million, but don't forget, sir, we actually expect that number to still shift because of X, Y, and Z. Those are the people who are going to make it out of that big pool of 20 somethings into that next smaller pool. And it's not going to really matter whether you're male or female at that point. And the more you look for sexism around every corner, you will find it. Every, everything that has gone wrong in your life can be explained by sexism. But does it matter? Will it make any difference to getting into that next smaller pool um, other than like sitting around and complaining about it with your girlfriends, which I'm totally okay with. But if you're constantly looking for it, you'll find it whether it's there or not. And it won't matter when you're trying to compete. So compete, be smarter, be better. You know, I used to tell kids, if you're asked to photocopy something, you should be reading what you're photocopying. Don't just sit there and photocopy it. It's just like, it's Hill 101 advice that I think is so good at any job.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just say, um, I always took the approach of, um, just knowing your spots, right? Like knowing when the opportunities are to make your case. And I think that that is kind of gender neutral. Um, especially when you're first coming up, there's, So many times where you look at something, you're like, I can do that better. I know that. Like, you know, we there's a better strategy here. There's something else we can be doing. But going in a bowl in a China shop is just a bad way to sell your idea. And so there's a lot of just the art of persuasion, I think, that you have to learn when you're working in large organizations, when you're working in sensitive organizations, when you're working Anywhere with anyone, and um, there's times that you can present your ideas. There's advocates that you can develop within your organization that will listen to you, and um, and raise your voice up. And I think you have to be a little strategic about that, um, and you do need to know your place because you need to know exactly where you sit in the organization, how you are how you're perceived in the organization and what you need to do to get where you want to go. And it sounds so manipulative and calculated that way, but really it's just, you know, making sure that you can be your own advocate, that you can develop a network and um that you can maneuver the and you know pull all the strings that you can to get where you want to go eventually and make sure that your ideas are heard and you know that you are considered for those opportunities and those things and and i think that's just gender neutral um advice, because, you know, working with um, younger kids straight out of college, especially now, um, I can see how I was probably seen, which is like, sometimes I'm just like, hold on, <laughs> you know, that is a fantastic idea, but you just gave it to me in all the wrong ways. Like, I'm not going to consider it because of the way that you pr- you approached me about it. Um, so I think that that's something, you know, in every stage of your career, knowing where you sit, understanding, um, you know, kind of how your voice is heard and making sure that you can tailor it to your audience, which is just such a comms one hundred one you know, answer, but.
4: And I also, um, always felt, especially when I worked in the Hill, I always wanted to be in a collaborator with women and men. I never wanted to step on anyone on the way up. We used to say, our big saying was, don't step anyone on the way up, like, because some of the younger people, when you go somewhere else, like we used to say when I was a reporter, that the, the step, you know, the PA might in 10 years be the news director. So, you know what, don't step on anyone on the way up, you treat everyone professionally, you collaborate when you can, you give group praise, not I did, we did we did this piece, we did this memo, we, you know, give praise. And if you start giving praise to other people, you know, when they put in the work too, they'll give it back to you. And rising tides lift all boats. And I, I remember when I was a teller's reporter, I was, in, I was in my early 20s. I was in North Carolina and, and uh, one of this sheriff in this teeny county, I was, it was me and this other woman. And he said to us, and it's funny, I took it in the hope, I took it in the right way. But he said to us, you know, it was me and this other woman who was, who was very harsh. And he would say, you know, you get a whole lot more with sugar than you do with salt. And I must say, I was like, okay, I'm not sure, but I thought what he's saying in his own way, and this was like, you know, 1994, is you can be pleasant to me and I'll I'll help you, but if you're a jerk, I'm not going to tell you anything. You know, he was like the PIO in some county, but it was an inch, I think of that all the time, like when there's an instinct or a, to go nasty never gets you anywhere. Like you can, you can be very professional and direct in a very pleasant way. Like this memo wasn't what I expected. You know, we need to change these points or, or whatever it might be. You don't have to be nasty. And I think that's something I think about. And as I said, I, I'm very, I, I work a lot in relationships with my colleagues with the Hill, you know, like my Mr. Ruppersberger used to say, the world is built on relationships and trust. Which is, I've, that's, those are the two things, you know, better with sugar than salt salt and relationships of trust. And I've tried to build my career on that and and it's all worked out.
2: You know, Tal, it's funny, that reminds me of a story of a woman who I worked with at a very senior level um, who would come into meetings. And I think building on what you said, but like it was a slight misunderstanding of it. And she would say, I did this, I accomplished this you know, here's what my team did, even though in fact, like other people at the table had either clearly worked on it or frankly, it didn't matter because it sounded, she was sort of the only woman at the table and it was so self-focused that you could just see everyone bristling at the table because it wasn't the culture of the room. And instead of, as you said, it's a very fine line. You need other women to validate what you're saying or men. You have to work that out ahead of time you have to read the culture in the room because walking in and saying i did it <laughs> recognize me it's not going to work for most office cultures and so that's why what the obama women did i, I read that too it's just it was a genius switch because you can't say i just said that that was my idea everyone's gonna be like oh my god like get over yourself we heard you he's okay. phrased it in a better way but having another person in the room ideally a woman validate that is what makes the difference. And so being able to read that is just going to come with time for a lot of, at least for me, it took me forever.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot of the advice I give to uh, younger people now comes from my own lessons learned, (laughs) let's call them. (laughs) So don't think you get it right on your way up all the time. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. There are a couple questions in the chat that I think are sort of in the same vein. So I'm going to throw them out to the group. And this is, and I think everything you're hearing is like wonderful career advice as well as wonderful, like women's specific career advice too. And I think that's important to remember that like a lot of what you're hearing is just about like being a good colleague and leader and team player. Um, women are going to have to usually do more of it and be more cognizant of it, but it's all just great, great general advice. Um, I wanna switch gears a little bit to sort of more um, career advice in general, Uh, and I'll just read the questions. Um, One says, I spent the first five years of my career working in local news, shout out to local news, got my master's in Homeland Security and I've been working as a contractor in DC about a year now. I'm still facing a lot of rejection because of my non-traditional background and because I don't have as much direct experience as other candidates. What advice do you have for marketing my background as a strength rather than a weakness when I'm competing against Hill staffers, former interns, et cetera? And then relatedly, um, being a woman mom based in the Midwest, working in cybersecurity with a firm based in DC, what advice do you have to help one continue to stand out and be considered to further grow into leadership with the good connections we already have credibility yet, but perhaps are unaware of our growth goals? Uh, What can we do more independently as well? So kind of dual questions of how do I kind of get noticed to get in and once I'm in, how do I get noticed um, to kind of move up? Um, if anyone wants to jump in, I I have some thoughts as well.
3: I feel like Heather should take this one because you know the first question was the <laughs> local news. There you go.
4: Yeah. So um, so it's sort of multifaceted. My answer, I, I would. So I always say networking, and it's funny because it was beaten into me. So when I started on the Hill, so I was a television reporter. You you know you had to go up and interview people you didn't know. I get to the Hill, but in a like casual setting, you know, like out in a a fire, you know, it's local news. And I remember I started on the Hill in um, 2002 and the chief of staff at the time brought in an etiquette person, but we had women and men and we, they taught us how to enter a room in a cocktail party, introduce yourself to someone you don't know, walk over to someone you don't know, which happens a lot in the Hill. You're going to network, especially if you don't, you know, if you're new and how to make conversation, how to make small talk, how to um, get something out of them. If you like, if you need to find someone in support of something or against something or whatever your goal is. And they used to say, go to each event and grab three cards and follow up with those three cards. Just don't go and not follow up because then what's the point? Why just, you know, why'd you go home late if you're not gonna do that? Um, And that was one of the things I would say to career advancement is find someone above you who you can relate to, who you can say, you know, I really wanna do this or that. You know, I, I really want to grow in the company. I want to be, you know, I, I want a leadership role. Are there committees? Like we, we're a large is now, a large operation now. When I started, it was only 20 people. Now we're like 120. So we have working groups for like everything. That's a way to move up. Get offered to be on a working group. Offer to, you know, I'm, I'm on the hiring. I'm on the strategic national security hiring group. Takes a ton of time, ton of time. But it's great because I meet with the president of the company once a month and we say, we need we have a need here, this gap, or how, we're looking at this person. It's a way to move up and be seen, but you wanna strategically engage and see who, and also who makes a decision. Like you wanna move up, who's the decision maker? Who's gonna give you that promotion? Figure out how to, how to, you know, get yourself around them, show your worth, say you're a good worker, you've got expertise, you're a good writer. You have to sort of play, and it's, it's a cultural thing. You have to sort of play the room, it can't be too forward, you know, you have to see, you have to sort of assess what makes sense. I mean, that's how I've sort of gone through my career. And I've, I've had all, I've had good news director bosses, terrible news director, but like the whole thing. I had to get off the weekend shift. I was like, come on, like, what am I gonna do to get off the weekend shift and get the day shift? But those are things you gotta sort of assess the situation and see who makes the decisions.
1: So funny, it's um, so similar to what we do as reporters, right? Like it feels like we're on different you know, ends of, but it's the, the basic, the basics are, you know, so universal in terms of, um, connecting with people and, um, the follow-up is so important. Um, I tell, I tell young people like networking, I think sounds really scary when you're first standing out and like, it's something like foreign where it's like, it's, it's not, it's, it's like, relationship building the same way you do with friends or anyone it's taking an interest in people remembering oh like you know like oh lauren i worked with her in saxby's office she knew cybersecurity i have a cybersecurity question now maybe i'll reach out and i'll also ask how she's doing you know how are her kids that kind of thing like those kinds of genuinely listening to people when they talk remembering <laughs> what they talk about, like that is very basic stuff. And that is, that is networking. Um, You know, I will also say in terms of, um, and and Heather, I I do the same, like figure out the decision maker. Absolutely. And um, as a reporter, like specific to my world, like you can have a million bylines. It doesn't matter if people don't remember them. Right. So it's like, make sure that the people you need to make a mental note every time you have a great story, can put a face with the name, like reach out to them, ask them questions about what they do, just get on their radar and then let your work shine. But your work has to get in front of them for them to actually be able to recognize your work. Um, And then on the subject of like applying for things and selling a background that's non-traditional, you know, I, I got into journalism from a school, University of Chicago, that back when I was there, like, didn't produce journalists. And I was applying to all these jobs in Chicago, and they are like, we've never had a U Chicago intern. And I actually found it could be a strength once I was able to sell it that way. And so I think, you know, everyone's version of this is different, but you need to be able to say to a hiring manager, and this is probably going to be in your cover letter, like, Here's why I am the only person you should hire for this job. You're going to have lots of options. I may be one of a good set of good options, but I'm going to be that only person. And you have to package that. You have to say, all your other applicants look the same. I have all this unique experience, and it's going to be an advantage here. And I've talked to plenty of you know, folks in cybersecurity who say, no, we want sociology majors, because we want people to be able to understand how the adversary thinks. We have plenty of people who can program. We want someone who can apply it in an interesting way. There are people out there looking for those offbeat um, or perhaps less conventional backgrounds, but you have to be able to sort of package yourself and sell it to them directly and acknowledge that you may not have that traditional, you know, sort of resume, but this is why it's actually a strength and and sort of confront that head on.
3: Um, And Lauren and and Heather- No, yeah. And be willing to take the intermediary job to get where you want to go. I think like for a lot of career conversions, um, especially when you're switching subject matter fields, um, you know, the educational part is amazing and like having that background. But then it's also being willing to get in where, you know, anywhere you can and then build from there. Um, Because I think a lot of people just want to go straight to the top, um, especially when they're um, making big shifts like that. And that's a little bit more difficult, but if you can get your foot in the door and then you prove yourself and then you continue to market yourself, um, it's much more impactful than, you know, for example, I know a lot of, um, Gen Z people are like, oh, I'm just going to start a LinkedIn blog and I'm going to like do a lot of personal branding around, you know, my expertise on this and um, and that's all well and good and maybe could be a part of a a longer term professional uh, branding strategy. But at the end of the day, you do need to kind of get your foot in the door where you want to be and then build some real credibility and real case studies that you can go present to future employers or hiring managers uh, that show that you do know your stuff.
2: Uh, Tal, this may be actually very bad advice, but it is what I did. And so I'm going to pass it on for what it's worth. Don't adopt it if you don't like it. (laughs) So uh, there's a book by a a woman whose name I'm, of course, immediately blanking on. I'll think of it in a second. Anyway, it's called Radical Candor. Um, And this is my Bible, basically. And I tell people that from the second they hire me sometimes before they hire me that i subscribe to this theory of communication i don't believe in compliment sandwiches um i i am going to be just incredibly uh, honest and and full candor so once you have that reputation um there will be downsides to having that reputation undoubtedly and depending on the corporate culture that you're stepping into they may or may not like it but everyone knows where i stand everyone knows where i want to go um, you're not confused when I give you feedback about, you know, only hearing the good parts. For instance, I don't give you good parts. If you you know, the good parts are the good parts already. Um, and there's something a little bit similar about networking. I don't go to a cocktail party where I don't know people and try to talk to 10 people. I try to talk to one person. Now, I don't mean like get them in the corner and dominate them and not let them leave for a drink, but if I can form one genuine conversation to build a relationship on that's far more valuable than, you know, 10 people who I said hi to and learn their name. And for me, and again, it's, I'm an introvert like this. I hate cocktail parties. I hate walking into a room where I don't know anyone is like the like my nightmare. Um, but if you're willing to sort of be vulnerable, walk into those things saying, Oh yeah. I mean, I look nothing like a traditional candidate. I haven't done this. I haven't done this, but you know, all the candidates you're talking to, I already know who you're talking to because I've done my homework. Um, I mean, I literally did this in an interview one time. (laughs) I was like, you're talking to this person and this person and this person, they're great. They'll look great in this job. No one will second guess you hiring that person. Um, I'm smarter than they are. You're going to pay me less than they are. And I will work harder than they will. So do what you want to do. But I'm gonna look a lot better in the long term after you've hired me, even if people don't know who I am yet. And I got the job.
1: I think I think the takeaway is you kind of have to over time learn yourself and and learn the environment you're working within and figure out, you know, how do my strengths and my background and, and my experience allow me to navigate this environment. And there's no one size fits all. I love the radical candor idea. Um, I have to do sandwich feedback because otherwise I come off a little too strong. And that's my reminder to like, I just need that. Like, remember, say something nice and then get into, <laughs> but you know, I mean, like that doesn't mean either of us are right. That means that we've figured out a way to navigate it that works for us. Um, I can't believe how fast this hour has flown by, and I feel awful because there's so many great questions in the chat still, um, including one about imposter syndrome, which I will just say, everyone feels that way, I promise you, everyone is insecure, uh, and you just have to trust that everyone in the room is as insecure as you, and they're just faking it, and you will get there, (laughs) and I promise you are not actually at a disadvantage to any of them. Like that's just in your head. Um, But yeah, this- this, And by um, the way,
2: if you are less qualified than everyone else in the room, good for you. And just like feel good about the fact that you tricked your way into that room and that should give you confidence. I mean, sometimes I am like, this is an imposter syndrome. I actually don't belong here. Good for me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh, so thank you to everyone for the great questions. I'm sorry we couldn't spend, um, you know, three hours talking about this. Um, I'm sure that you can get in touch with NSI uh, if you have follow-up. I know for me, you can find me on Twitter and my DMs are open. If you do have any specific questions, um, I, I, I will see them there. Um, you know, I don't know if any of the other panelists want to throw something out. Some people very smartly stay off Twitter and the, the open internet, so. <laughs> um, but uh i just sorry did someone jump in okay um i do want to mention nsi has some other events coming up um so there's the Winds media festival website so there's more happening this week uh uh on march 22nd from 12 to 1 nsi will have an event with uh anwa manuel moderated by nick Schifrin, uh that explores china's push to become the next technology leader very on topic uh, for the news today. Uh, NSI is also launching their first crypto event on March 30th from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern time to discuss the intersection of crypto innovation and U.S. national security. And you can find these events and more at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu and follow NSI on Twitter at Mason And with that, I think our time has come to a close. Thank you everyone so much for joining us. Thank you. Hi everyone. It's
4: great to see everyone.